by investors who've been in the company for 10 years and they want the exit now, yesterday, last week. There are investors who think the world is coming to an end because somebody in the US has just lost a bit of money. But at the end of the day, the will of the founder beats everybody else. And uh, yeah, there was this situation where the founder said, enough is enough. Let's take our chips off the table and leave the casino. Hey, hey, it's Sarah, and you're tuning in to Billion Dollar Moves, where we deconstruct the billion dollar moves of world-class funders and founders every week, typically from the US and Asia venture ecosystem. This week, we are up for a treat as we take a turn to Southeast Asia, and you're tuning in to a follow-up episode to the last part one, because this episode was just so good, I had to split it into two, with venture capitalist Dimitri Levitt, Russian-born Israeli citizen who is now deemed an expert of investing. In Southeast Asia, having spent more than a decade building his firm, Sento Ventures. They typically invest in Series A and lead the round, and notable investments include 2C2P, Pomelo, iPrice, and Kaibi, the latter formerly led by Tiwa York, who we also had on the show. You want to be checking out episode uh, Building Through Startup Chaos in November 2022. In today's part two, we go a little bit more micro what Dimitri is still excited by in building his portfolio, how his founders are thinking about 2023 and beyond, the multi-dimensions of trade exits, and zooming out again, of course, to Dimitri's commentary on geopolitics, the false doom of Chinese capital in Southeast Asia. Really power-packed. You need to be taking notes for these two episodes if you want to understand investing in Southeast Asia. You don't want to miss it. Now let's get started. That gives me a prompt to go a little bit more micro. We've been, you know, uh, talking so about the macro, macro. And, and sort of a little bit more macro than than what what you know uh, typically we, we do. But um, let's talk a little bit about your portfolio, right? Uh, you've made some interesting investments over the years. You've had this firm. Is this your tenth year now for Cento? It's probably eleventh, if not twelfth. Eleventh. Yeah. Okay. It's, I wish it would be my firm, but no greatness in the agency of others so team of partners three of us now yes and of course coming in in a few days and of course so you've been building this partnership for more than a decade uh and you've invested into a interesting portfolio of companies tell us a little bit more about you know what you're excited by what are you seeing at the micro level in terms of how the founders are thinking about you know 2023 and beyond these are two different questions what i am excited about and what the founders think um let me answer the first one because Second one is unanswerable. Every founder thinks their own thing. Um, on the first level, I quite enjoy the fact that all this intake of capital that we discussed, whether it was well deployed or not well deployed, it still accelerated the flow of time in Southeast Asia. In some markets more, in some markets less. But let me um, give you, for example, Indonesia's financial services space. It was not supposed to get to this level of complexity, regulation, nuance, competitive levels, and the number of players in the market of this size this early. I was expecting to think deep thoughts about fast payments and the impact on consumer settlements and uh, nuance of complying with multiple layers of regulation circa 2027. But so much capital has arrived. Regulators had to respond. Mm. Local players had to respond. Everybody's proud of the digital financial services unit of some sort. It's now not a checkers game. Now it is a chess game and a three-dimensional at once. And I'm, uh, for that matter, and I'm quite attracted to complexity. And over the course of 10 years, we got a little bit better than we were 
at understanding a confluence of digital ecosystem and financial ecosystem. So I feel like this is no longer an industry where just having capital uh, gives one the win. Now it's an industry where one has to think and understand and gather information and make very calculated moves. Not necessarily billion dollar ones, but you know, for our standards, a couple of hundred million here and there. Um, so that's what excites me. Um, in a word, emergence of very complicated industry on the overlap of digital industry and finance industry. Indonesia being a highlight, but Thailand is not much simpler. And Vietnam is getting complicated very fast. What do founders think? Oh, it all depends on what they've built so far. The earlier stage guys have a bit easier. Seed stage and series A are puttering along and pivoting a small boat is a bit easier. Guys with super tankers, uh, for them, it's the life or death situation at the moment. And we have a couple of them in our portfolio. Some have chosen to exit last year. And in one case, I was really, really strongly resisting. But now, many months later, I really understand the wisdom of catching the wave of capital markets while it could be. And um, it's quite a bit of time being spent right now shoring up defenses, lowering costs, and making sure that the loyal investors stay loyal. And and I want to dive a little bit deeper with what you said there, which is fascinating. Uh with regard to a founder's decision to take advantage of where capital markets are. And, you know, you only saw the wisdom later on. Tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, um, large trade exits are always um, a multidimensional, multifaceted beast. There would be stakeholders who invested only just recently and they want to carry on for 10 years. There are investors who have been in the company for 10 years and they want the exit now, yesterday, last week. There are investors who think the world is coming to an end because somebody in the U.S. has just lost a bit of money. And then there are investors who say Asia is rising, Asia is forever, why rush? And that's just two people in one room. Imagine a boardroom of seven or nine. And then you have various members of leadership in every given company. Somebody might be young and riding a tiger and building a career. And this name is a fantastic presence in their LinkedIn profile. Somebody is way past retirement age and would really like just to be left alone. And if you dig deeper, there is the country level issues, the politics, the regulators, the competitors, the hostilities, the old dramas. So it's um, turtles all the way down. And these decisions are never easy. And that's, as you can imagine, from the level of detail into which I go, one of the things I truly enjoy doing, uh, management of tension and um, stakeholder um, argument over such decisions. But at the end of the day, the will of the founder beats everybody else. And uh, yeah, there was this situation where the founder said, enough is enough. Let's take our chips off the table and leave the casino. And guess what? I was so in disagreement with his decision for a few months. And then I read some news. Okay, well done. And this is fascinating. I mean, you know, what we're seeing in the boardrooms, I think I, I've heard versions of this, right? And it reflects, again, you know, we always think about who are the, uh, who are, who are the different stakeholders representing, right? Who's behind the person who's negotiating in the boardroom here? And you sort of, uh, talked about the different personalities. And I want to understand from you, you know, uh, there was a time where a certain company, right? The darling of Southeast Asia was, uh, hot of the moment, uh, and I'm talking about Grab here, and investors thought this was the moment, this is the time, December 2021, uh, let's do the thing. And yet we were on the cusp of things really unraveling. What are your thoughts on, you know, the impact of something like that? What happened with Grab and I guess the disappointment there to Southeast Asia as a whole? Interesting 
question that I'm always struggling to address because you see, once the company goes past series C or D, I stop studying them specifically, but they have left my envelope of engagement and I just continue studying them as a class. So specific insights on Grab, apart from the fact that it will not give me too many new friendships if I discuss <laughs> the company in too much details. It's just, I really genuinely haven't spent much time tracking their numbers. Again, Momentum Works does quite a lot of that to truly understand what has been fair, what has not been. I can just only applaud Altimeter as I looked at the timing of their uh, move, wouldn't have chosen the highest point. That was just impeccably well-timed. Not exactly great for the shareholders of the company, but for the SPAC itself, brilliant. I have no idea how they do that. Um, on the black eye uh, overall to the ecosystem that this subsequent behavior of the stock has delivered, I have two views. One is folks who would be disappointed by that would not be significant shareholders in the first place. They would have been steering closer to C group or maybe even to not yet public late stage private companies because they shouldn't have gone into the stock if they are um, worried about capital markets not appreciating the negative unit economics and all that. Um, folks that have decided to bet on this story, the narrative hasn't changed. The region has big, massive, poorly planned cities with a ton of local services that lose a ton of margin delivering goods to the consumers. Therefore, a platform that delivers those goods effectively, whether they are right, pay, uh, rides on taxis or whether they are food, uh, that whole thing pertains. The notion of super app that they bought into is still there. So just a couple of more years of waiting for the execution. But that's for the folks who do analysis of the specific stock. I hear what you're really asking, which is, is the impression of Southeast Asia in general going to be damaged? Well, look, um, let's speak of a previous wave of aggressive foreign players who decided to sell Southeast Asia as a fantastic new market and who may or may not have delivered on that promise, Rocket Internet. So there is a, quite a debate and I'm not taking attention of the recent wave, it's just probably we can learn a little bit from the past. Has Rocket Internet arrival to Southeast Asia been a net benefit and a net loss? Is a topic of many a spirited debate in local Telegram groups. But from what I can see, their very, very generous pick has probably burnt the region in the eyes of a dozen large European investors for about 10 years. Wow. It has also attracted massive amounts of attention to Southeast Asia tech that would not have arrived for the next 10 years, if not for the names of Lazada, Zalora, Foodpanda. And it has given Southeast Asia, I lost count, 10,000, an immense number of experienced executives and founders who have emerged from various bunches of pieces of rocket internet with sometimes great implicit assumptions and sometimes terrible implicit assumptions, which led them to build either great companies or terrible companies. So the compound effect of that whole phenomenon that was rocket internet operating in Southeast Asia for half a decade, there were significant losses in some parts of global capital ecosystem where people just swore off touching anything that comes from Southeast Asia for the next decade. And that was probably the unnecessary and regrettable cost, but the amount of capital and attention, and sorry, the second degree capital and attention and entrepreneurs that this arrival to Southeast Asia has caused. I was always a bit of a skeptical uh, observer of rockets and tips, but I have to, even I have to admit that probably they were by a small margin in that cost. So mm. I would imagine the wave of capital that has given us slightly overpriced unicorn companies around here in a few years when the smoke clears, we'll look back and we'll say, 
it damaged quite a few people, wiped out quite a few fortunes, disappointed quite a few global investors, but on a total, total net result, at least this capital has not gone into traditional uh, conglomerates that would not deploy this capital even with that level of efficiency. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new Service Hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. I think I, I'm inclined to agree, but I'm trying to be neutral here. <laughs> That there is oh, a slight just, uh, net positive. <laughs> it was just a long way of saying, I really don't know. Yeah, yeah, I know. You're trying to be super careful here, but now I'm going to put you a, a little bit in the, in the spot here. So I did tune into Momentum Works uh, and their predictions, and I did want to get your view, right? So some of their predictions are for 2023 is uh, we'll see a lot more divestments. We'll see major e-commerce platforms invest in delivery operations. Uh, social commerce and grocery startups will crumble. And Chinese VC will finally set up in the region and more investment in Indian startups. Do you agree? What are your thoughts? I mean, there's a lot there, but, you know, pick, pick one up and let's go down the rabbit hole of what you think about uh, the predictions. Sure. So on the Chinese VC, uh, it's a 50-50. Last time we observed enthusiasm from China Inc. about Southeast Asia was in early 2015 when the capital markets in China hiccuped and the buildup of the political firestorm that came to fruition last two years, that buildup was being visible. All of a sudden, very prominent leaders of Chinese VC ecosystem have developed deep understanding of Indonesian ecosystem and a strong desire to own real estate in Singapore. And the wave of capital that was expected to result from that never emerged. The rules were relaxed, the uh, trespassers were forgiven, and the new wave of investment in China started. And all of these um, investments into real estate in Singapore became investment properties. Now we are going through this again. And there was quite a flood of folks escaping China and Hong Kong for various reasons, from various layers of the ecosystem, all through the last two years. And I think the peak of that negative sentiment was reached probably last November. And then all of a sudden, additional government programs, announcements of a whole new set of initiatives that one can invest into. And um, a message floating in the air of the tech crackdown is over, whatever that may mean. So mm. will we see the repetition of 2015, a false dawn, as it were, of Chinese capital in Southeast Asia? Or have folks been spooked for real this time? We shall see. I'm visiting the offices of my friends who used to have big offices in Hong Kong. They now have gigantic floors and high-rises in Singapore, set up as backup facilities for Hong Kong, all empty. The backup was set up, but people never moved. So I think we are on the cusp of figuring out how it will really work. And probably once this podcast goes online, we will finally know, but not as we <laughs> start, uh, in January 2023. Huh. As for Momentum Works' other predictions, so they, unlike me, do actually keep a very close eye on food delivery space. Uh, we 
pulled back from that from since our last exit in that space all the way back in 2017, I think. Um, so probably I will not double guess their thoughts about what happens in that space. And as for the social commerce and a couple of other things they've mentioned, groceries, I think. I don't really yeah, think they're referring yeah, to these industries crumbling because the low cost of user acquisition through social media agents is a thing. I think they're referring to narratives crumbling. There were quite a few nascent narratives around uh, being able to displace 7-Eleven and Lawson's and other corner stores entirely with the smart use of dark stores and some interesting math. And that was possible in certain configuration of a German city at a certain period of time while regulators look the other way and with the immense amount of capital available. But uh, that specific confluence of factors that gave us the 15-minute delivery startup probably has passed not to be seen again for a few years, I think. But that brings me to the point of, of course, geopolitics playing a role in the Southeast Asia region and, and what happens and, you know, where capital flows. And of course, uh, you being my first Russian guest, uh, I am tempted to go here and we'll go here very briefly. But how has... Uh, that play, you know, with, with Ukraine and Russia is what I'm, I'm alluding to. Uh, how has that played out, if anything at all, uh, in the work that you do? So on the topic of me being Russian, uh, as mentioned before, I chose to become a citizen of a whole different nation in 2017, the one that has very peaceful, quiet politics, no conflicts with neighbors at all, and very predictable change of government <laughs> status Israel, um, That's uh, right. which should help me rather a lot with my business in Malaysia and Indonesia, come to think of it. Uh, but I still am very attuned to what's happening in my old home. It's an unbelievable tragedy on many, many levels. No more and no less tragic than anything we see in Africa or Myanmar. Let me make sure that I mention that. I have received quite a few pointed remarks from my various founder friends who operate in civil war zone, uh, civil war zones, yes, and distressed company, countries and rogue regimes even. And they always point to me that uh, I feel a bit stronger about Russia-Ukraine thing because I come from that region, but it's just another conflict in the um, series of huge disruption that's happening globally. But seeing how I'm the one responsible, accountable for that, as far as Southeast Asia is concerned, uh, the impact on the macroeconomic level is easily traceable. Southeast Asian countries, regrettably, still choose to buy experts of Russian Federation, attracted, no doubt, by heavy discounts on oil and whatnot. And uh, I'll stop here and not comment on the diplomacy of sovereign nations. Uh, there's been a wave of highly qualified, highly talented emigration from Ukraine, Belarus, Belarusia, that always gets forgotten, but it's the third participant of the conflict, and Russia, all of them. And some of these waves went to nearby countries, you know, your Armenia, your Kazakhstan, but quite a few are washing ashore all over Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand. I think Bali alone got a couple of hundred thousand more permanent inhabitants. And it's not quite yet clear what this movement of people would cause. But I noticed one thing from the last 10 years of investing into various founders in Southeast Asia, general rule of thumb, which is highly, highly subjective and probably not really a rule. But for me, the way this worked out, founders who have somewhere to go, a home to return to, whether it's a safe job back in New York or whether it's a comfortable office back in Tokyo, usually do not perform truly well in Southeast Asia. Folks with nowhere to run, your Iranians, your Burmese, your Egyptians, they fight and they win. 
And I think what we're seeing is developers and leaders from these three countries arriving to Southeast Asia, they no longer have a home to go back to. That will probably help them build here. Fascinating. And uh, I, I guess, you know, I didn't want to leave this conversation without getting some learnings from your 10 years investing in Southeast Asia and building a firm together with your partners as well. When you think about, you know, I, I know you to be very reflective of, of your journey and everything that's happening around uh, your sphere of, of influence. When you think about your top lessons in building and seeing founders build, working with them to build, what would you say are your top three that come to mind? Well, the one that I just mentioned about kind of burning bridges behind one and just going forward is probably one of the top three. Um, the other one that's a bit more probably the ability to play both the air game and the ground game, which is to say be respectful of the substance, but be also respectful of the predominant narrative. That seemed to be key to survival, at least in the last 10 years, for as long as narratives really truly drive 80% of capital deployment, one just cannot ignore them, much as a certain kind of founder that I really like working with prefers to just, um, you know, focus on what's in front of them, the team, the model, the customers, the fit, air game of being present, talking about one story, explaining it in the way people from overseas can understand. That's incredibly important. And the third thing would be something that will come to this region with its growing maturity. But for the moment, I noticed in not only in our portfolio, but also in portfolios of quite a few fellow travelers who we are talking to honestly well, probably one of the highest reasons for startup mortality is um stakeholder management or mismanagement misaligned incentives people who invested for the reasons that do not coincide with reasons of other investors dislocations between interests of a vc and interests of a private equity firm of a strategic a and a strategic b so the third lesson for me in the last 10 years was when we try to assist the founders we partner with Yes, it's all good and well to help with business development and full-on fundraising and recruitment and all the stuff that all the VCs do, more or less. But the management of alignment, whether it's through legal documents, whether it's through the proper running of the board, whether it's through collecting the correct set of investors for the cap table in the first place, that seems to be yet another key to success that is rarely appreciated and spoken of. So, air game, ground game, having nowhere to run, and the alignment of incentives and stakeholders, dry and anodyne, though that might sound, this would be my big three. They're extremely important. I think extremely important, and I'm glad that you framed it in, in that way. So what's next for uh, Dimitri? I mean, are you, I, I mean, we've, we've only touched the surface here. I could go on for hours with you, and probably we need to continue on with drinks uh, next time in, I'm in Singapore. But what next for you? I mean, you've built this firm in the last decade. Uh, you're looked to as one of the experts in the region now, uh, although you're, you're sheepish about that, of course, careful with your predictions. But what next for you? So we've been busy in the last two years um, exiting the positions we've built in the previous five. So we are down to just a few precious old relationships um, that will run for a few more years. So there's quite a bit of spare capacity in the team, which coincidentally we've been building up. And... Uh, this has been my major investment of time and energy, promoting and or external um, alignment and bringing into the company of new senior talent. So now we are loaded up with capital, have a good team and a refreshed team and the valuations, not to be predatory because it's not always the best investment that has the lowest valuation, but 
it's a little bit easier now to think through the transformation of value chains and through the business models that work when the narratives and the influx of capital are less important to the investment decision. So I think for the next 18 months, it will be uh, a very hard burn to invest, 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 deploy, deploy, deploy. Which Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands, everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, Talking Too Loud, wherever you get your podcasts. We've been holding back on for the last three years and then I'll catch my breath, go to Bali for a bit and think about it <laughs> after that. But the next 18 months will be Mm. And uh, wishing you all the luck with that. Uh, and of course, I'm going to end here with a quick fire round with uh, billion dollar questions to Dimitri Levitt. Are you ready, Dimitri? So these are quick Just ones. Okay? No. <laughs> okay, let's go with the billion ones. Let's go. Uh, money or power? Power. What keeps you up at night? Prospect of dying alone. Mm. What are you afraid of? Same. A moment you felt like giving up? Everything time we have to raise a new fund what would you tell your younger self uh well one of those never 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 give up things but let me do one better i keep getting advice in life to do it later don't do it now too young too early too soon never to take that advice hmm. who's on your speed dial uh my entire team and a couple of founders currently in trouble hmm. When have you taken a stand on something and why? Uh, that would be probably entirely denying everything that comes with the current Russia regime and banning myself from coming back home pretty much forever, at least under the current government, by being rather supportive, I would say, of my Ukrainian friends and their activities. What does the world need more of today? Uh... Oh dear. I would again call for peace, but it's so obvious it goes without saying. Probably a little bit more rationality and kindness, if I may. Mm. What habit do you have uh, that you picked up recently that has changed your life? Uh, most recently, uh, seeing how Singapore banned my favorite sin, which is hookah, water pipe smoking. Uh, for reasons that I still am to understand, and I will send an inquiry to the Ministry of Healthcare, I took up cigar smoking, which opened up social <laughs> networking vistas that I have never expected. And seeing how I don't play golf, that seems to be the way to the dark, smoky backrooms of Singapore oh, Lord. politics. I know. Okay, I love it. And finally, what is the legacy that you will leave behind? Well, too soon, way too soon. Not even Wait thinking about that. But if you do ask me uh, one of your favorite fast questions uh, that I see coming up in every interview of yours, so I actually started thinking about that. You ask people, who is successful? Who do you think of as successful? And it's not a question I ever ask myself, so you force me to ask it of myself. And I, strangely enough, arrived to a very unexpected character who is highly controversial and probably not necessarily well-known, but I'll name him anyway, Bill Browner. 
Hmm. If you've never come across that name, and if your audience hasn't, I'll plug two of his books, The Red Notice and The Freezing Order. That's the gentleman who, whatever his history may have been and whichever, made, whichever way he made his money, he used this money in the second half of his life to change the course of history with Magnitsky Act and to avenge his murdered friend. And that's the legacy to aspire to. Wow. And with that, Dimitri, of course, this is the way that we end with some intrigue and some question marks and some uh, left, some things to be continued on conversations. Hopefully we'll uh, figure out where we can get the hookah <laughs> or otherwise I'll see you in the cigar rooms next time. Kuala Lumpur and Jakarta. Ahoy. <laughs> That's right. Actually, in, in KL, it's, it's very popular. So I, I actually I didn't know about this, that hookah is banned. Because 2016 July, the, 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 the black date in my calendar. I am in Singapore oh, right now, so I cannot comment. <laughs> no comments. And let's not get you into any more trouble that you are already in with uh, your commentary. All right, Dimitri. Well, thank you so much for your time. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.